Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, but uh, I'm going to kind of be in several different places today. I'm going to try to, to... to bring Philippians to a close. We won't cover everything I know that that is worthy of being covered, but I want to go ahead and jump to verse 13 quickly just to kind of go ahead and get it out of the way. Uh, that's so many people, that's their favorite verse. Uh, but today we're going to put that verse in context. We're going to put it in context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. Paul had every reason to experience anxiety. And for those of you who are worry warts and you like hearing about your biggest issues, today is that day. Uh, Paul has already mentioned only a few things like church trouble, uh, errant preachers, sick friends, Fighting friends, guards, death, arrest. I mean, these are things that would cause any of us a great degree of worry or anxiety. Now, when we get to verse 6 in a few moments, the word anxious uh, is an interesting translation. Uh, Let's go ahead and begin. I'm going to begin reading in verse 2, though, today, all right? I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. I love that they both get their own entreating. That's important because Paul's playing the middle road here. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I love that he slides that in there. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have what? Learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. Now that word in verse 6 is a a very interesting translation. It means to be careful. It means to consider. And so when you see that Paul is telling them not to be anxious, what he is actually saying, the idea in this context, is if you think too 
carefully, you're going to paralyze yourself. So this whole letter is written really with one idea, and that is to have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And this is a message that has been true for every culture for all time, is to have the mind of Christ. And then over and over and over, he talks about peace. He talks about joy and rejoicing and, and, uh, and these hopeful ideas that should come out of the mind of Christ that, was, that is in us now. So when you spend too much time considering the direction of your choice, you're going to get in your head. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever heard people say, boy, I'm just, I'm just in my own head. Anybody ever say that? You know, you just, people just, well, so when I took, uh, as a PE credit in college, I took golf. Well, as a pastoral student, it was required. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I, I took golf and I remember these guys and I, my, my teacher would say this all the time and, and I hear it every time I get ready to drive. You sit down there and you look and you look. And then you look again, and then you adjust, and then you get in your head. Wait a minute, what am I doing? I got to step away. You ever had any of you golfers ever had just to step away and then just readdress the ball? And you get down there again, and you think, well, the last time that I stood like this, it went that way. So here's what happens this is what my, my golf teacher said it's called paralysis by analysis. And when you overthink things, you tend to get in your head. And it begins to paralyze your decision-making. Believe it or not, that's exactly what Paul was talking about here. Paralysis by analysis. The inability to make the right choice. Because you've thought about it too long. You have the kingdom and this kingdom at stake. You have God's glory and your choice at stake. And you're trying to make a decision. Stuck in the middle, over-considering, what am I going to do? How am I going to negotiate with God? And what will happen is you will lose heart, you will give up, and most oftentimes you will, you will perform muscle memory, which is always the easy way, the way of the flesh, right? So this whole letter is teaching us to have the mind of Christ, which always chooses his way Quickly, be ready to quickly choose what God would want. Quickly choose what the glory of God would be. We've talked about the single-mindedness of always choosing based on what is good for God's glory. And the more you do that, the easier those choices are. The more you focus on God's glory, the easier it is to find in every circumstance. To be able to have a submissive mind where you're not considering what will this cost me. You won't consider how does this affect my life. But the submissive mind says it's what God wants. It's for you. I love you more than I love me. Here's my choice. It's an easy choice when you're submitted to the king. It's obvious that you're going to make choices submitting to one another. And last week, we talked about the spiritual mind that always chooses the eternal, not the temporary. It always chooses long, not now. So Paul is bringing this culmination 
into this moment, this having the mind of Christ. So when we are single-minded and submissive-minded and spiritually-minded, the way of God is easy and quick to choose. When we're at a fork of the road, which way do we go? We choose God's kingdom. We don't consider long. We don't consider self, time, money, energy. We consider him and him alone. That is having the mind of Christ. And you will see this exemplified in Jesus' life every time Jesus chooses that direction. Quickly. Quickly. Self's way always ends up in rebellion and disobedience, ultimately death. And when we're in the middle between these two options, we have an anxious mind. Now you say, well, Pastor, I have, a, I have like a worry. It's a worry problem. It's diagnosed. Well, we can diagnose it. But most of the time, this worried mind is say, well, I, I don't, sometimes it's not about what I'm going to do or what choice. Sometimes it's not choosing to believe a promise that God has made. Maybe God's going to leave me. Maybe not, God's not going to with, be with me. Maybe God doesn't want good things for me. Maybe God's not going to whatever the case may be. And so we just get throttled. So your spirit, which is attached to your mind, okay, so those of you who've been around for a little while, you, you might remember this illustration. On this side of center, we're going to call this the flesh. On this side of center, we're going to call that the spirit. And in the middle, where I'm standing now, we're going to call the mind, okay? So God created us and redeems us in all three of these parts. So from time to time, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to forget to say what it is, and so now you're going to know. Come in really handy in the, on the test that you'll get as you leave today. Just kidding. <clears throat> so your spirit is attached to your mind, and it's always going to pull your mind to the glory of God. But your flesh is also attached to your mind, and it's always going to pull you to your flesh, right? It's always going to pull you to fear, to comfort, to safety. So anxiety is when you are in the middle and you're torn between the two, which option you're going to choose. Worry is the byproduct of not choosing God's way, not choosing God's word, not believing God's promise. I think this is one of the reasons why Christians, and I want to be very careful here uh, because I'm, I don't want to speak harm, but I think it's one of the reasons why many Christians battle anxiety at such a higher rate. And, because, and there's also guilt attached to that anxiety as well. It's because Christians understand hope. Christians understand the spiritual side and they know they should long for it. And so they also understand the fear and what that's attached to. So when Christians are stuck between those two, it's this anxiety with guilt and it's heavy and it might even be heavier because of our awareness of a better way. Our, worry, our word worry comes from a word that means 
to strangle. Okay, so when somebody says, hey, I'm really worried about you, don't, don't take that in a different uh, way, all right? Uh, okay, that's kind of funny. I need to, you need to help me a little bit, okay? Uh, to strangle. See, that's exactly, though, what happens when, when we're anxious. Uh, in, in anxiety, anxiety is strangling hope, and it's called worry. Our joy and our peace is being choked out. Worry is wrong thinking, that's our mind, based on wrong feeling, that's our heart, or our wrong feeling based on wrong thinking. And so our, our heart and mind, they influence each other. One triggers the other. It's not always the same way, but they, they trigger each other. And this works for us in, in faith and against us in fear. You know, when I believe in God, that's awesome that those things influence each other. But when I'm headed toward fear, that is a terrible, crazy cycle. And one pushes the other, and they begin to swirl, and then they begin to spin, and that becomes anxiety. God's word is clear. God's promises are clear. And when we don't quickly choose him, we spin. So anxiety is what occurs when we are not resting in him, when, when what he said regarding our circumstances, you know, we, we choose our own way instead of his way, and we, we choose the validation of people and the, the, the consumption of things. So I want to bring all that to a close by saying anxiety happens when we get settled in and only consider ourselves. But did you know that you don't have to worry? You don't have to be anxious. You just have to give Jesus the... Now listen, this is going to be the invitation. So listen closely now. To give Jesus the totality of your life. That's the primary issue with modern Christianity is we give Jesus only the parts we want him to have. And there's so many parts that are still open to anxiety and all of the paralysis. And if Satan can paralyze enough of you, he will neutralize you in your faith and your effectiveness in giving a testimony of, of your faith. So we have to learn as Christians, the Spirit does not do this. He does not do this. To, we have to learn to consistently give Jesus our mind, our heart, our choices, our words, our time. Jesus, allowing Jesus to control every part of my life. Now, here's the definitive statement. And I want you to hear the, the weight of it. Give Jesus every part of your life quickly. Because there is no peace without it. Peace doesn't exist unless we quickly line our hearts and our minds up with Jesus. But anxiety is not our root problem. Anxiety is a byproduct of another problem. It's a symptom of a deeper issue. Have you ever tried, how many of you would say, how many of you would say that you have a problem with worry or anxiety? Anybody honest enough to? Okay, some of you are going to worry about that later. 
You ever tried, you ever, those of you who are honest enough to admit that, have you ever tried to divert your worry and maybe tell yourself to stop worrying? Anybody? How's that work? It doesn't work because all you're doing, I mean, it's like cutting yourself and saying, stop bleeding. I mean, it didn't work. That's not really your problem. There's another problem. There's, a, there's another problem. That's just a byproduct. It's just the obvious a symptom of a deeper issue. Worry is an alignment problem. Okay? Worry is an alignment problem. It's because we've not taken captive our thoughts to Christ quickly. We've not made a decision that in every moment we're going to line up with Jesus' way. We're trying to live our life and just escape hell. That's pretty much what Christianity can be reduced to. Can, what can, what, what's the least I have to do just not to go to hell? And there's no peace in that. Only anxiety. Because you're constantly asking yourself the question at every fork in the road, can a Christian do this? Can a Christian, can you still be a Christian and do this? There's no peace for a Christian that's living their entire Christian existence asking themselves, what can I get away with? The question Christians should be asking is, what is good for God's glory? What promotes the gospel? What advances his kingdom? And it's obvious for those who have the mind of Christ which direction we should go. Worry, Worry is just what is left over when the enemy has stolen something. When he has come into your ear and said, hath God said, and he begins to cause doubt on God's way, God's will, God's promise, God's presence, God's path. When, take, when Satan takes your trust, he takes your hope. And without hope, you can't have peace. And so this is what Paul is trying to give to the church. There's a lot of reasons for them to worry and a lot of reasons for them to experience anxiety too. So peace is the avenue to rejoicing. That's why he writes in verses 4 through 7. I'm going to read that again just so we can be, it can be fresh, all right? Rejoice. Okay, let me stop for a moment and ask you the question. Rejoice what? Now you can say I'm going to try to be joyful. I need more joy in my life. Fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to have joy in my life. I've got to choose joy, choose joy, choose joy. Well, it doesn't work that way. You can't just choose joy like that. Joy is a byproduct of hard work that nobody wants to do. Of consistent living, consistent thinking, consistent heart. So what is, you can't just Choose joy because you want to be joyful. What does Paul say? Rejoice what? In the Lord. That's where your joy comes from. In the Lord. Not in your circumstance. Not in favor with people. Not in the newest, the biggest, the brightest, the good day that you're having. Your hair lined up just right and I'm, God, I got a lot of joy today. Look how my clothes fit me. Oh, I'm having a lot of joy today. I got a whatever, promotion at work, whatever. Now, all my relationships are working out. I've got joy. No, no, no. Joy, rejoice in the Lord when? Always. This is that quick choice at every time. Our joy must be in the right place in the Lord, and our joy must come from Him at 
all times. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And as a result of these things, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will what? Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the context for this particular admonition from Paul lies in a division between two ladies in the church, Euodia and Syntyche. We don't know what the dispute was because it does not matter what the dispute was. Paul compels the church, if these ladies cannot come to terms, help them. I love this because Paul doesn't say, hold an open court and determine who's right and wrong. Do you get any indication from Paul here that it matters who's right and wrong? Nope. It's because it's not there. I I entreat both of you ladies to agree in the Lord. Not to admit you're right or admit you're wrong. Not to hug it out. Paul isn't focused on who's right and who's wrong. He doesn't tell the leaders to determine what's right and what's wrong. There doesn't have to be a right and wrong side. These ladies are co-laborers with each other. They've been beneficial co-laborers with Paul. He knows them. He knows their heart. He knows that they're in a moment right now and they're not thinking with the mind of Christ. What they need is to go back and to have the mind of Christ. Help them agree in the Lord. Remind them of what's important. Remind them of single-mindedness, of submitting to one another. Remind them of thinking for eternity. Their work for Jesus is good, but that all that work has been sidelined because of paralysis by analysis, their unwillingness to work it out. My goodness, how often that happens in a church. I love that it reminds them. Uh, Whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, who are written in the book of life. I wish that if this were paraphrased, I really feel like Paul would say, you know what? What difference does it make? We all end up in eternity together. Get over yourself. Truth of the matter is, this isn't a salvation problem. This isn't a salvation issue. Move on, link arms. When the eternal is in view, what could possibly be more important than advancing the kingdom? Pray for your enemies. You know why Jesus says pray for your enemies? Because you can't pray for people and be angry at them. Pray for those who spitefully use you because you can't be angry at people when you're praying for them. Paul actually moves past this disagreement, although I think it sets the course. He moves past the disagreement rather quickly, knowing that it's going to be resolved. I think when he was writing it, he probably even said to himself, when they read this, they'll get it. (laughs) Focus on the kingdom instead of being right. Have a spiritual mind instead of having a selfish mind. And if they can't figure it out, church, help them. 
Tension comes from a lack of rejoicing together. So I say again, rejoice. As he moves forward, there's a word here that he uses I want us to focus on for just a moment. Um, it, it's, it struck me as a really, really odd word, and I've spent hours trying to figure out what in the world could Paul possibly be meaning here. And so in verse 5, he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word is only found in four other places written by three other writers. The Greek word is epiakes. Epiakes. It means to be mild, to be fair, to be equitable, to be gentle. It means to consider the way to bring people to the center of something. To bring, to bring people to a place of understanding. Understanding their situation. Understanding each other's mind. What he's telling the church here is to, to find the place where God's glory is. A mind that focuses on God's kingdom. God's glory. God's will. A mind that is full of equal measure of grace and truth. Like Jesus. That's what reasonableness means. To bring to the center full of grace and truth. This is true for these ladies. It's true for the church. If, if it's true for that church, it's true for this church. If it's true for this church, it's true for the church of Jesus Christ around the world. We should be known by our reasonableness. By everyone. People inside the church, people outside the church. But for at least 50 years, we've been known by the majority, the strong vote, the right ones. And we point our fingers at everybody who disagrees with us. And we are not known by our reasonableness, full of grace and truth. And we have pendulum shifts so much now that you've got churches that are all grace and there is no truth. And you have churches that are all truth and there is no grace but the church of Jesus Christ today, in itself and outside, is not known for reasonableness, a gentleness, a way to bring people together in the middle to see each other's side for the sake of the kingdom. I don't think it's ever been as obvious as it is right now in a post-COVID world. I know I get so sick of talking about COVID, but, but what I think has happened with COVID is it has, it has just exacerbated or fast-forwarded the direction we were already headed. But I've never seen or read of a society that's more divided on every issue. And what are we looking? We're looking to be right and it's not enough to be right. We have to prove everybody else wrong. And if you, we can go back very, very far. It, it involves every aspect of our life. We identify with this group, that group, this is my group on that issue, and this is my group on that issue. Listen, folks, I say this with love. I love you. I promise you that I love you. We got to we got to get over ourselves. 
And we've got to stop worrying about being right, and we've got to start worrying about having the mind of Christ, which shows people full of grace and truth. That's, that, listen, that's a hard line to walk, because honestly, I do think we're right. But I don't think that's going to win people to Jesus, proving that we're right. I think we win to G- people to Jesus, and then they'll see that we're right. This is why Paul said to Rome that it is the goodness of God that leads people to to, uh, repentance. The kindness of God is shown to us so that we may repent. Reasonableness, not explosive anger when somebody waves a wrong flag. Not explosive anger when you turn on the news and you get mad at the other side. And listen, that stuff has got to go. It's got to go. We're not going, I, I, don't, I do not understand why we identify in a time where the difference is such a stark contrast, where the world is starving for reasonableness, and we're identifying with a political party instead of the kingdom. God forgive us. We got the wrong name on the flag that we wave that's going to be the hope for our country. The wrong name. I don't care what name is on your flag. They're not the hope. Jesus is. It's reasonable to love people instead of inflaming people to anger. We're not going to beat people over the head into the kingdom. And that's what Paul was saying to them 2,000 years ago. Be known by your gentleness. Chill out. Think of the kingdom. That word reasonableness comes from the same word. We have a word that's kind of like that. We don't use reasonableness much. But it's the same word that means clemency. Clemency. I know that you've probably heard that in legal ease. Somebody somebody applied for or was granted clemency. It's the process where convicted felons, guilty felons, are relieved from punishment and they seek restoration of their civil rights. That's clemency. You did it, but we're going to absolve that. Now you get all of your rights back. That's what the word reasonableness means. It means not to hold the felony to their name to be able to see through it. It's interesting that I don't, I don't know if there's something here or not. Uh, I've, I've, well, I saw it, but I, I don't know if it's intentional. But when Paul is addressing, addressing this issue of reasonableness in the context of a church dispute, he mentions one of his co-laborers in verse 3. Remember what his name is? Look at verse 3. What is his name? Clement. Well, he just told him that they should grant clemency to everyone. And then he talked about walking step with Clement. What's the, it, the name? I mean, it's the same word. It means to show mercy. The name produces the word clemency to interpret grace through truth and truth through grace. I love it. So when you deal with difficulties with people, be merciful. Be merciful. You don't have to worry about being right. Be gentle. Be known by everyone in the church, out of the church, 
by your mercy, not your rightness. Man, how would this translate if, we, if the church of Jesus Christ were ramping toward that right now? I, th- I just am convinced that this is a message the world is dying to hear. And I, I can't help but think, and I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a positive person, to be quite honest with you. I have to work on that. But I really believe that this is one of the, like the modern-day division. I feel like it's almost a gift to the church, not a curse. Because there's never been a day where reasonableness would be more obvious. Remember last week when I talked about how we had forgotten to live in expectation of Jesus' return? So Paul continues, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Paul is saying when we live in anticipation of Jesus' presence and Jesus' return, when you live with the eternal in mind that Jesus is coming both now and then, when you're aware of his presence, reasonableness is so much easier. When we live in anticipation of Jesus, there's no room for anxiety because our minds are way above the temporary. We won't worry. We so focused on the kingdom, we so focused on the king that we won't have time for our feelings and our thoughts to be hijacked by fear or our enemies. So when Jesus is our focus, circumstances lose their power, people lose their influence, and things lose their draw, and we are free. Free to quickly choose Jesus. Now, Paul, Paul gives a few very, very clear um, ways of living by faith that leads to hope, that leads to peace, that leads to joy. Uh, go back to verse 6. He uses three words here. Prayer, supplication, with what? Thanksgiving. And praying correctly involves all three of these areas. Prayer is a very general word. It means communing with God. It has to go along with it this idea of devotion, adoration, worship. That's what prayer means. It means to have an open heaven, to live under an open heaven where we have this relationship with Jesus immediately. Stepping boldly before the throne of grace, right? And so, again, Paul has mentioned circumstances, people, and things. But here, he tells us that we ourselves are sometimes get in our own way when it comes to joy because we don't direct our worry or anxiety in the right direction. We try to solve our issues instead of worshiping God. Listen, have you ever been anxious or worried? I mean, that's one of the hardest times in the world to worship the Lord. When you're pent up with worry, it's really hard to lift holy hands, right? Paul says that's the remedy. In fact, the remedy would be to never be in that situation, I guess, but... When worry strikes our mind or our heart, prayer should be our first action. When you start feeling the weight of the world coming on you, the first thing you should do is go to the Lord in in prayer. Surrender, adoration, remembrance, worship, they're all perfect remedies when we find our hearts or our minds are not centered on on Him. One of the things that I feel like the Lord gave me for us is when we see God's majesty, we no longer can see our own fear. When we see his majesty, we can't see our fear. Second word he uses is supplication. 
Supplication is a kind of a fancy way of sharing your needs with God. Me sharing what my burdens for you, your issues, lifting, lifting your things before the Lord. Supplication. Sharing of needs and issues of others to God. So prayer and supplication, your heart for Him and your heart for others with thanksgiving sprinkled over both of those things. Thanksgiving is obviously giving thanks to God freely, returning a grateful heart instead of a troubled heart. Think of how many times I come to God only when I'm troubled and I beg Him to work. And Paul talks about this pathway to peace from anxiety. He never mentions himself. When he talks about these remedies, he never says, and here's what I do. You know, here's how God helps me. He's, he's never focused on himself. Worship God, care for others, and be thankful. How's that? So you should be writing this down. This is it. For all you worry warts, all you anxious people, I've already got it written down. I'm going to try to take my own medicine here. Worship God, care for others, and be thankful. Be thankful. Thankful, by the way, looks in every direction. Thankful looks back at what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. But sometimes praying is hard, isn't it? What do you do when you're in a situation and your mind's already not right? Well, this right mind, right heart for joy formula is found at the end of the level, a letter, not at the beginning. So remember, Paul's trying to get us to line up with the mind of Christ. How can we possibly adore him when our circumstances obscure him? When I'm in the middle of a dilemma and I'm so focused on what's happening to me, I can't worship God. How in the world am I going to be able to share your needs to God when I'm so consumed with my own? And our consumer mindset would never be grateful or appreciate anything. It's no wonder we've never been more stressed. And, and by the way, it's the word of our testimony that's supposed to teach the world that they should want what we got. And a lot of times Christians are more stressed than lost people. You don't have to turn over there, but if you take a notes, write down Daniel chapter 6. I want you to go back and, and see this. In verse 11, I want to read, start in verse 10. Now, you, you know the story. This, uh, you know, they're, they're commanding everybody to go out and worship the idol, and you can't pray to another god. You've got to pray to the king, and Daniel refuses to. They pass this big law that if you don't worship the idol, if you don't worship you know, their god, you, you go, bad things are going to happen, right? So I'm fast-forwarding through that pretty quick. But verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, by the way, forbidding prayer, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men, 
came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Now, I want you to notice there are three things recorded here. There is prayer, there is supplication, and there is thanksgiving in verses 10 and 11. Daniel knew the formula three times a day. Now, what does it produce? Well, you have to go down to verse 18 to see what the result was. The result is Daniel is asleep in the lion's den when the king is in the palace. What does it say in verse 18? Sleep fled from him. You want peace? You better be aligned in prayer, right praying, right thinking. Verse 8. Finally, I love when Paul says finally because it virtually means nothing. No, I'm just kidding. This, this time it's a different word. It actually does mean in conclusion. And it means that for me as well. Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these Things, Isaiah 26, 3. I could do this all day long with verses of Scripture because it is everywhere. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Wrong thinking always leads to wrong feeling. And it does not take long for the heart and the mind to be pulled apart and strangled. We want peace, but we don't want to do the work. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy, these should be our thoughts. And when you have God's peace, it can be. This past Wednesday night, Billy was teaching the men about having the right heart for the Word of God and choosing, choosing to pursue spiritual discipline in their life. His admonition was to read Psalm 19 every day until this coming Wednesday. And as I've done that, I can't help but see the similarity between what Paul asks of Christians and how they are to think about and, and what David says about the word that is produced when you're in it. Look at Psalm 19, verses 7 and 9. Just, you can just listen. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Do you see the similarities there? Paul said, think on these things. David said, the word of God produces these things in you. If you want to have the right feeling, you better be in prayer. If you want to have the right thinking, you better be in his word. Spending time in God's presence leads to a right heart. Spending time in God's word leads to a right mind. And when the spirit says jump, you can say how high. And when the flesh says jump, you can say, shut up, liar. Quick. Don't think too long. You'll paralyze yourself. And your hope will get strangled and you'll begin to live by a strangled hope.
Psalm 119, 165, those who love your law will have great peace. Verse 9, what you have learned and received. Notice how this worked together. What you have learned and applied and heard and seen. You've heard it, you've watched me. You've learned it, you've applied it and received it. What you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, he's talking about receiving it and applying it, engaged in it, not just sitting at church. That's not going to do much for you. But applying what you are learning, producing what you are hearing, you know that who you are produces what you do. That's what Paul is saying. When your mind is right, your actions will produce peace and righteousness. It's a byproduct. You don't have to worry about what you're producing when your heart and mind's right. When your heart and mind's right, you have the mind of Christ. You'll produce the works of Christ. You don't have to worry about what you're going to do. That is so hard, and you always have to second guess. Did I do it? Did I do it the right way? Did I do it the right way? And you're always second guessing what you do, and it becomes a works righteousness. You have to get things perfect in order to be able to have peace. But if you'll just be lined up with Jesus, you don't have to worry about what you do because he's doing it through you. When he said, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Man, I really like that because earlier he said, if your heart and mind is right, the peace of God will guard your heart and mind, right? The peace of God will guard your heart and mind. And now all of a sudden that your heart and mind is producing things out here, the God of peace himself will be with you. I mean, before I had God's things, now I have God himself and his things. How powerful is that? Philippians chapter 4 is the joy, the peace chapter of the Bible. James chapter 4, on the other hand, is the war chapter. James 4 begins with a question. Verse 1 says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Then he gets down to verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Wrong praying. Then you skip down to verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wrong thinking. Back up to verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wrong living. Paul tells us the way to peace. James tells us this is where every struggle in your life comes from. I love how Paul closes this letter by focusing on commitment. I mean, contentment. And his situation calls for anything but contentment. But Paul teaches that contentment can't be found in the comfort of circumstances, the favor of people, or the possession of things. Contentment can only be found in a satisfaction, and satisfaction can only be found in, in Jesus Christ. The only way to contentment is to learn it. The only way to learn it is to struggle. 
Do you know the word contentment is only found one time in all of Scripture? The only time, this is the only time this word is in there. It, it, uh, it means contained is what it means. I mean, it, what, what Paul is saying is everything I need is contained in me. Everything I need is contained. Now, the, the word, we, we, we could use the word independent, like I've got all, I've got all I need. And many people live that way. But that's not the way that Paul uses this, obviously. What he is saying is that Jesus is in me, and Jesus is all I need. I am contained. Within me is the power of Jesus Christ. I have learned that in every circumstance, in every dispute, in every consumeristic mind or, or worldly possession, that Jesus is all the peace I need. I've abandoned everything else. And I'm telling you, folks, I'm working on it too. But when you abandon everything this world has to offer for everything that he already has placed in you, you can make decisions to honor the glory of God quickly. Otherwise, stranglehold. You ready? We're going to get to the verse now. 13. All of that is encapsulated in this verse that everybody wants to claim as their own. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul, Paul, this is a very powerful verse in, in a lot of ways. Number one, it's the encapsulation of everything that he's taught so far. But the way that Paul says this, he, he uses this word all, all things. I can do all things is the word panta. It's two words, pan. Most anybody that, that likes Greek or mythology or whatever, pan means everything, everything. It's all inclusive. Of everything, but when you add the TA to the end of it, panta, it actually talks about at the microscopic level, right? It's a really odd word. What Paul is saying is every little thing. 2,000 years before Jimi Hendrix, he said, every little thing is going to be all right. Every little thing. There is not a microscopic issue that is before me that I can't accomplish through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. That's the second part, strengthens me. That word is one of the words where we get empowerment. But in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament translation of the Greek, this word was always used to talk about the full power of an entire army. I can do every minuscule thing before me because I have at my disposal the power of an army in Christ Jesus <laughs> while he's chained to a guard.
I'm going to ask you to stand with me. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes. This statement is very true for all of us. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is not a thing. There's not a situation. There's not an issue that we cannot overcome with peace when we're strengthened by Jesus Christ. It's a truth. If you want to claim the truth, that's great. But the full context of this is when you choose quickly in every circumstance, in every moment, you're choosing eternity, you're choosing God's glory. That's where peace comes. Peace gives birth to contentment. So this morning, I, I want us just where we are I want us just to spend a couple moments and, and not pray. I don't want us to pray this morning. I want us to repent. And if, and if you cannot repent today, then I want you to pray for a heart of repentance. That we as God's people in a day when, when God chose this culture, this time to place us here to reveal his kingdom our reasonableness and we can't be reasonable when we're unreasonable when we're fighting every little fight when we're arguing and bickering and angry and when we're throwing our hands up exasperated by the very world that we are supposed to be revealing the kingdom to This morning, I don't, I don't really want to tell you how to pray, but I'm going to tell you how I'm going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to pray that God would give me conviction because fear and worry is kind of my go-to. It's kind of like I don't, I don't really think about it. I just find myself there. But I want him to give me a quickening that I can very quickly take every thought captive to him and choose quickly to believe his promises and to trust his presence. And I know good and well we don't live that way. I know I don't. And I'm going to ask you to pray for me. you'd like for me to pray for you if you just slip your hand up I'm not going to pray for you right now but I will pray for you this is where it starts Russell Thomas told me this morning he said I don't know if you know but we're on the brink of a revival it's the first thing I thought of this morning when I got up is God is positioning us for a revival well that's anticipation that's expectation isn't it let's agree with that God, give us new hearts. 
Give us reasonable hearts that line up, that line up with your mind. Help us to be in your presence. Help us to be in your word and help us to, as a product, live the way you would live and produce what you would produce. God, forgive us. Forgive us as a church for being anything other than a house of prayer, a place of worship. Forgive us for choosing to be anything other than a refuge. Forgive us, Lord, for not producing the works of your hands. I pray that you would create in us such an anticipation for lost souls. Lord, I pray for all of our leaders that you would unite us together, that we would charge hell to reclaim and to see restored those people and families that are broken and lost and strangled. May we be and produce the hope, Lord, that is contagious in our communities. Raise us up, Lord, so that the world doesn't see us, but they see you. Lord, we are sorry. Make us sorry. I pray that you would give us conviction when we care more about our comfort than we do lost souls going to hell. When we're satisfied at beating our chest and thanking you that we're not like those people. Lord, remind us that we can do, there's not a circumstance that we can't accomplish through the power of Jesus Christ that gives us strength. And may we depend consistently, contentedly upon that strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.